Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. Today is part two of our series, or our little sermonette series, I should say, on worship. Worship could be many, 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 many more weeks than what we're doing. We're just doing it in two. But I'm just emphasizing something that we see in, uh, in the book of Revelation about future tense worship. So if you go to Revelation chapter 5, let me just give a quick review for those that weren't here. Uh, we basically talked about the holiness of God and seeing God for who He is and being in awe of who God is. And out of that comes worship and praise And we saw in the future, uh, according to John in Revelation 4 and 5, that the future of heaven is filled with worship. And I brought up the point that as a little kid, this terrified me because nothing sounded more boring to me than standing around in heaven and singing. Now, when people used to talk about streets of gold and the lion laying down with the lamb, and I I could play with a lion? Is that what you're telling me heaven's going to be like? There's going to be golden streets and I can play with a lion. Okay, that excited me because I was a little boy, right? I watched the Discovery Channel. I watched lions eat gazelles. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, So to to play with one, well, that sounds great. And, 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 you know, as a little kid, the idea of singing songs, are you kidding me? I'm not even sure I want to go if that's what's going on up there. I cannot be the only little kid that thought that growing up in church. Lots of people I've talked to feel that way because our concept of what worship is is some dutiful, boring thing that you do at church before you get to, hopefully, a good sermon, and then I can go home and feel spiritual because I was there. That's what we've reduced Christianity to in our culture, and that's why... We have so many problems because we don't know God at all. But we think we do. It's terrible. It's like taking a medicine that you really need and finding out later you're taking the sugar pill. There's nothing in that pill that you're taking. And that's why you feel so bad. You have high blood pressure, you need blood pressure medicine, you need blood pressure medicine, not the sugar pill. If you're taking the sugar pill, you still feel bad because you're not getting the real thing. And Christianity is not meant to be a placebo, I feel better about myself because I showed up religion. And I showed up once, every so often, throughout the month. But my real life is engaged in the things I want to do. And and that mentality and that mindset amongst Christians is why our faith is anemic and weak. And it's why the church is anemic and weak. And I'm not trying to just get on some complaining fest. But it's the truth. It's just simply the truth that we've been robbed of a vibrant relationship with God because we've exchanged it for the culture's definition of a relationship with God. And the culture's definition of a relationship with God is if you go to church twice a month, you're already a spiritual weirdo. You don't have anything to wor- you don't have anything to worry about. You're way more dedicated than everybody else. So if you're using that as the standard, do you see the problem? 
But the problem is, is these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the problem. So that's why we're talking about what is biblical worship. And future tense, I want us to go back to Revelation 5. We're going to go to verse 9 and 10, and I want to emphasize this and go from here. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a song that is being sung in the future. We will hear this song. John was looking into the future seeing this song. And the song teaches us something. It teaches us something about worship and it teaches us something about us. What I mentioned last week was that God is taking from every tribe, language, people, and nation and making them into a kingdom. God, throughout history, has been building a kingdom. And that kingdom is, a, is made of people. It's made of us. We are living stones, Peter tells us, that are being built together into a house of worship. We are living stones, and God is building a temple in the Lord. And He's building it. Not all the stones look the same, sound the same, are the same, the stones are multi-faceted throughout all of history. Stones are being used to build a building, people, from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation. This means that heaven will be the most diverse thing you have ever seen in terms of humanity. There will be every representation of humanity throughout history, including people groups that have no longer exist. There are people groups that are no longer here. There are languages we no longer speak in heaven. I don't know how that works out language-wise, but I know that God specifically mentions in Revelation to emphasize, I've got people from every single group on earth. Briefly mentioned that this is the reason why there cannot be any racism or bigotry within the church because God wants us all to be living stones together. He doesn't say that you as a living stone need to be like the other living stone. He doesn't say you need to do things the same way. He doesn't say you're supposed to speak the same language. He is glorified in the diversity itself. And when our world is at war, it feels like, over racial things or nationalistic things or just, I'm in a different tribe because I think different than you, when we're at war over those things, you see again the shallowness of our sinful condition because we can't step back and see in a larger picture that God made all these groups, loves all these groups, and is building a kingdom out of these groups. So there isn't a place for a Christian to comfortably stand and say, I don't like that group because they're all the same. You can't do that as a Christian. 
You can't do that as a Christian. So the kingdom of God that God is building, and I want you to see that again, in the song they say it's from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You have made them a kingdom. God is making a kingdom out of people. You and I are a part of that kingdom. How many of you have heard this language before? We are a part of the kingdom of God. Have you considered that what we're saying is, is that you, you are what make it the kingdom? God brings us into His kingdom, and a kingdom has a king. Jesus is our king. We are His kingdom subjects. But that is not all that it says. It says we are a kingdom and priests to our God. We are a kingdom and priests to our God. That means that I'm looking at a congregation of priests. Believe it or not, you are a priest. What does a priest do? Does anybody know? I don't mean a clerical priest. I don't mean the guy wearing the collar, the little white thing. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is what is a biblical priest? Where is the imagery that John is drawing from? He's drawing from the Old Testament understanding of what a priest is. What did the priest do in the Old Testament? They specifically ministered between porch and altar. They ministered the things of God to the people of God. And they also ministered to the Lord by bringing the sacrifices of the people into the temple. They conducted the worship of God in a specific setting, in a specific place, at specific times, with specific sacrifices. How many of you are reading through the Bible and you get to the boring parts, so we think, in Exodus and Leviticus, and we get in there and we're like, oh my gosh, how many animals are they going to kill? Right? You read through there and they're sacrificing bulls and goats and pigeons. Well, maybe not pigeons. That would not be an acceptable sacrifice of any kind. Uh, doves, they're sacrificing birds. They're sacrificing... There's grain offerings and drink offerings. There's all this stuff they're doing and our American brains are like, oh my gosh, I just want to get to something that makes sense. I don't even know why you're doing this. Right? Am I, is that the way we read that? That's the way we read that. But a priest is ministering to the Lord, the sacrifices that He commanded. And there was only one group, the Levitical priesthood, that got to be in that group. You didn't get to just volunteer to be a priest. You had to be a part of that group. You had to be a part of that family, that tribe. Now, John is telling us that God is building a kingdom of priests. And what do the priests in this kingdom do? All of us? What are what is the role of the of the priest? To worship, to engage in the worship of God. So it's not just one group on behalf of people in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific way. It's now every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every group that's ever lived, wherever the context is. You are a priest of worship to God with your entire life. 
And that is the entirety of my sermon this morning. You are a priest to God, ministering to Him with your life, worship. This is what they are singing about. That God is creating a people for worship. And I'm going to get to that in a lot of detail here. Let me tell you, Revelation 1.6, just so you can hear it. It says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Revelation tells us three different times there's a kingdom being built of people, and these people from every group, of every color, of every language, these people are all priests to God. I need some more information, Pastor Steve. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Because I'm just coming to church, and you put some words up here, and I sing them because I'm supposed to, and then I sit down and I wait for you to say something. I have no idea how to be a priest. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I want you to hear what Peter says about this very topic. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. In the Old Testament, you see there were prophets, there were priests, there were kings. David functioned in those roles. Most of the kings did not function in all of them. And Peter is telling me that we are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Don't you remember the whole promise of Israel was, I'm going to make a nation? You will be a nation, Israel. And they were a literal, physical nation. And now, in the new covenant, what you see with God's intention, there's lots and lots here what I'm about to say. I'm just going to say it that there is a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual Israel, and the spiritual Israel is the church, which is made up of every tribe and tongue and race, Jew and Gentile, throughout all of history. And that is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? Why is He doing this? We read it in Revelation 5. Why is God doing this? that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The reason God is making this kingdom of His, of people, into a priesthood is so that they may proclaim His excellencies. What does that mean? I hate to use this as a comparison, but it will make sense to you. Have you ever eaten at a new restaurant and it was super good? 
And the first thing you did when you got to work the next day, you said, have you, ate, have you eaten at the ale house? Have you had their chicken and waffles? Have you had that? It's absolutely fantastic. Has anybody done this? Raise your hand if you've done this. I, you've went and you've described a restaurant that was great. You proclaimed its excellencies. You encouraged them to partake in the taste of the excellency that you are describing. You want them to know you are, in fact, evangelizing on behalf of that restaurant. Marketing campaigns are cleverly designed to get you to be that way. They want you talking. They know that their commercial is not nearly as effective as Alicia walking in to a group of nurses and saying, have you guys ever tried this? Because then those nurses are going to go home to their husbands and wives and they're going to say, hey, Alicia said we should try this. And then they're going to go try it. And then if it's really good, like, like she said it was, they will become evangelists. See how this works? They proclaim the excellencies of the restaurant. I think it should go without saying that God is the ultimate excellency of all things and His attributes and His ways and His goodness is worth talking about and proclaiming on a regular basis. You and I are a people of His own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were just a part of a a random group, you were just living, you were just existing, you were not a part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you're just out there. But now, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. This priesthood that God is building a kingdom out of is people who have received the mercy of God, forgiven of their sin, and are now telling the world about it. That's not all that gets told about it. We also encourage each other, don't we? As we proclaim the excellencies of Christ and what He's done in our life, in our marriage, in our children, in our home, in my heart, in my mind, in my emotions, in my walk with God, in my sanctification. He set me free from bondages and sins. He's helping me. He's teaching me. He's loving me. He's showing me. We, we talk this way to one another to encourage one another, to build one another up so the excellencies that are being proclaimed are to the world in an evangelistic sense, to our brothers and sisters in Christ in an encouraging sense. And also, we proclaim as excellencies when we're all by ourselves. I will come back to that. If I want to define worship then, I want the foundation for us to understand that we are a kingdom and we are priests that are offering worship. Worship then is not just a song, though it certainly is a song. Worship is not just a testimony, but it clearly is testimonial. 
as I give glory to God for what He's done. Worship is the entirety of my life. I've heard this before, but it's hard to make a connection. It's hard to make that work because I understand what worship songs are. But I want to let's let's define a little deeper what the Bible says about worship. And I want you to go stay in 1 Peter, turn the page back to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. This is Peter describing worship. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why am I using this verse for worship? Because I think this verse captures really well what worship really is. And I want to I try to unpack that altogether. Worship How do I want to say this? I've got it written down several different ways, but I want, to, I want to say this in a way that connects with us. Let me say this first. In the Old Testament, you had to go to a place. You had to go to the temple. You had to bring an appropriate sacrifice at the appropriate time of year for the sins that you committed. The priest had to do specific things, wearing specific clothes. There was a lot of specifics that God gave. And all of it was in the holiness and the righteousness of God, and He gave specifics to the way it was done. But that is not what we're doing in the New Testament. Have you noticed, as you've read through the Bible, as you've read through the New Testament, that there is nothing in the New Testament that tells us how many songs to sing. Have you you noticed this? There isn't anything about the number of songs you should sing, or the length of the songs you should sing, or the length of time you dedicate to the songs that you sing. There isn't anything about the order of the way a service should go. It says... Let all things be done decently and in order in 1 Corinthians 14. But it doesn't tell me what decent and in order looks like. It doesn't outline it. It's very much like Ikea directions. Just a bunch of pictures. And I know at the end it's supposed to look like this. How many of you have tried to put something together from Ikea? So it's, there's, there's not a specific one, two, three, come to church. Make, oh, it, doesn't even, it doesn't tell you what day. It doesn't tell you how to do it at all. Have you ever noticed this? There is zero instruction on format. Why do you think this is? There's a bunch of different regions. 
There's a bunch of different history. There's a bunch of different languages. There's a bunch of different people. And God is not telling all the different groups to do something a certain way. They're telling them to do a certain thing. Worship. But they're not, they're not telling, God's not telling us the format that He's looking for. When I was in Africa, they definitely did not follow the format we follow. Okay? Every last one of you would be offended to the end of the earth in Africa because they just don't care what time it is. Church starts at 10. Okay, 12.30. 12, 12.30, maybe. Maybe. Oh, and when are we going to end? Because I have things to do. I have a schedule to keep. Eh, we might be done at 4 or 3 or 7. Not sure. Don't care. We're going to come and we're going to worship. And that's what we're going to do. And they dance and clap for a long time. You would lose weight being a part of a church in Africa. I am not even remotely joking. You will be there is dancing and clapping and 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 then there's preaching and then there's dancing and clapping and then there's preaching and dancing and clapping and there's testimony and dancing and clapping and preaching and clapping and dancing and preaching and and it's like it just goes on and on and on and on and on and Kids are coming in and they're going out, and it's just completely different than the way we do it here. I remember we did a church survey once, as if that even matters. We go outside, clipboard, what do you look for in a church? We don't do that nonsense anymore, but we used to. And one of the guys said, well, when you say it's over at 12, you better be done at 12. That's the way we think. That's the, I mean, there's people like that. But you will notice in the New Testament that God doesn't, Give any local formats, thereby leaving it wide open for every culture to do the thing that's important, which is worship. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Isn't it weird how people get offended over the format of services and they're being offended over n- nothing? But that's what we're like. (laughs) We could have revival if you quit sitting in my chair. If you'd quit singing that stupid song, or if you would go back to singing this way. I used to have a copy of a letter that was written to a church in America, and when you read it, it tells you that uh, this guy's leaving the church because of the worldly influence and the music, and it's just unacceptable and we can't have that in the church and we're profaning the holy things of God and and you've probably heard this before if you've been in church any number of years as instruments have made their way into every denomination when I was growing up as a wild-eyed charismatic Pentecostal having these instruments was proof you were demon possessed now those churches are also using them I just find that funny but um but this letter was written and it said, you guys, are, you guys are just unacceptable and you've went off into modernism and we're just, we're just, we can't be a part of it. And then it was signed sometime in the uh, 17 or 1800s and it was over the introduction of Johann Sebastian Bach's music into their congregation, which 
Sebastian Bach said, all music is for the glory of God. He was an intensely Christian man. And his music was written, if you didn't know this, to the glory of God. But it was too modern several hundred years ago. We laugh at that now. (laughs) But we're all hardwired the same way. Worship is not a style. Worship is not a genre. Worship is not a subset of a subculture. Worship is the ultimate thing that the priests of God's kingdom do, and it's the living of their lives before God in joy. Look, look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy and rejoicing because of something God has done. And what He has done is made you a priest. And the way He made you a priest is He brought you into His kingdom. And if you have been brought into His kingdom, then you are changed by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to, I want you to, I want you to go with me to John chapter 4. Because there is a passage here specific to worship that specifically deals with this. John 4:22, the famous story of the woman at the well. They've already discussed living water. Jesus has already told her if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water and I'm going to give you something to drink that will never run out. They start talking a little bit about her infidelity. And then that prompts her to bring up, oh, where do you think we should worship? She's trying to change the subject (laughs) because he's brought up her husbands and lack of husbands. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What is he saying? We're not going to follow a format. We're not going to follow a specific system. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. This is incredibly important. For salvation is from the Jews. Sounds almost a little harsh, doesn't it? The truth is not harsh. Jesus is telling her there's a dispute between Samaritans and Jews. And the Samaritans say it's on this mountain and this temple. They have their own version of the, of the first five books of Moses. They have their own version of the way worship is supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, you are wrong. That is not the way that it's supposed to be. Jews know what they're doing because God gave them the commandments, so they are doing what's right. But I'm, I'm here to tell you something. It's changing. That's what he's telling her in this. He's saying, yes, there is a format. Yes, you're doing it wrong. The Jews worship on the mountain the way that they do in the temple, the way they do because they received the commandment from God to do so. They're doing it correctly, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The format, the temple, the system 
is going away because there's a new way coming and it's here. What is the new way? Spirit and in truth. Who inaugurates this new way? Who kicks this new way off? Jesus Himself does. Do you remember when Jesus says that there is someone here greater than the temple? Do you remember when Jesus said that? When He said this you are gonna, this temple, not a single stone of it's gonna stand, but you're gonna tear down this temple and it will be put back together in three days. You remember that? Jesus is letting them know, I am the center of worship. I'm here. I'm the king. I am in the flesh. I am the promised Messiah. And now a new way of worship is here in spirit and in truth. Not on a mountain, not in a temple, not in a format. It's me, I am the center of your worship. Me, Jesus. That is what he is saying. And this woman has no idea. She just knows she's encountering something she's never encountered before. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's always confused me what that means. But to worship in spirit, in John 3, he said, everyone who, everyone who is born again is born of the spirit. And I want you to do, I do want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 to, to help make sense of this. Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God. What, what am I driving at this morning? I'm, I'm driving at that there is not a format, there's not a location, there's not a geography, there's not a system that is set for us when you come to church, this is what worship looks like. Or when you go home, this is what worship lo- looks like. It's, it's three uh, fast songs and three slow songs. Or it's just all slow songs that are melancholy. Or it's just all fast upbeat songs like in Africa. Or whatever cult. It, none of that is relevant. Worship here, according to Jesus, is done in spirit and in truth. And Paul says that we worship by the Spirit of God. So I I take what Jesus is saying and I take what Paul is saying and I see that you have to be born again, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, moved by the Spirit to worship God. In other words, you must be be saved, but, but there's something that's being said here. That do I see on the outside that you've been saved? I do not. It's inside. It's internal. So so worship in spirit means I'm a born-again Christian filled with the Spirit of God and by that Spirit that changed me and brought me into the kingdom, made me a priest unto God, by that same Spirit, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to worship Him in spirit. It's internal. It's not on a mountain. It's not in a temple. It's not in this building. 
though we do worship here, and you can worship in a mountain, and you can worship in a house, and you can worship with a mouse, and you can worship here or there, you can worship anywhere. Okay? The reason you can do that is because it's internal. The Holy Spirit doesn't ever go away. He's always with me. So Jesus is saying, there is something new coming. I'm here. And those who are going to worship are going to worship in spirit and in truth. It is not going to be on a mountain. It's not going to be in a temple. It's going to be wherever they are. They're going to be able to worship because it's internal. It's internal because God comes and takes up residence in your heart. And because He takes residence there, the Holy Spirit crying, Abba, Father, in me is drawing me into worship all the time. If I'm responding to His promptings and His leadings, that's what He's doing. But He also said in truth, Remember, he told the woman, he said, you don't know what you're doing. The Jews know what they're doing. Do you remember that? What is he saying? You guys went off and wrote your own sections of the Bible. You did your own thing. So you're, you're like half right, half wrong, so you're wrong. You're not doing the format right. You went to a different mountain. You did a different thing. The Jews do know what they're doing. There's a truth. Please, nobody ever utter the phrase, I have my truth and you have your truth. There's, there's no such thing, okay? There's just not. There is the truth. If your truth is that it's okay to step in front of a bus, guess what truth you're going to encounter? Size and relativity. That's the real truth and you will be flattened and you will be dead. Truth is not relative. Truth is not your own personal possession. Truth is transcendent and it comes from God and it's expressed to us in His Word. Jesus tells us that worship will be done through the Holy Spirit by born-again people that are now in a new kingdom, that are priests unto God, and they're going to do that in spirit and truth. This is where I do get a little excited. Because if worship is an internal thing for each one of us individually, and truth is God's Word and who He is described in His Word, then part of what happens for Christians in worship is little tiny explosions of the reality of who God is coming out of His Word that prompt and provoke us to worship. God wants us to see who He is so that we can worship Him in spirit and truth. We, the more you learn and know about God, the more you worship in this internal, intense way. And it, it permeates our entire life. Our entire life is not just dependent on Sunday morning coming here to worship so I get feel-goods and goosebumps. And maybe I can cry and I feel better. That's, that's wonderful. We, we gather corporately to worship Because we're commanded to do so. But, your life that you live is a life of worship. Let me give you examples of what the New Testament says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's telling me that I go to work to the glory of God. The way that I live 
is worship. The way that I eat is worship. The way that I talk to people is worship because everywhere I go as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as a kingdom stone, as a priest unto God, I am ministering to Him with my life, worship. And as I grow in the knowledge of God, it changes me. It provokes me to more worship. It draws me closer to Him. Should you be feeling things? Yes, you should. You should be feeling it. Now, I know that's dangerous, okay? There's a lot of sermons that are true that we do not base our Christian walk on what we feel. That is 100% true. But that does not therefore mean that there are no feelings. Jesus said that your heart's got to be in it. They honor me with their lips, but their heart's somewhere else. What does He mean by that? He means that internally they don't care. They don't care. They do the right thing. God, when He takes up residency in your heart and He brings you into His kingdom, wants your affection. He wants your devotion. He wants your worship. And that's why I read 1 Peter. We don't see Him, but we know Him. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Well, Pastor Steve, I'm not feeling any of that. You are not reading your Bible. And you are not praying. Is that harsh? It's true. If I am not engaged with God, of course I'm not going to feel that. If all I've got for God are desperation prayers once or twice a month, God is still merciful and loving. Please hear me when I say that. But if I, if I want to... If I want to know God the way this is being described, this joy that's inexpressible, then I have to go chase after Him and pursue Him because, because I know as a priest unto God, as a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth, I need the truth, I need the knowledge of who God is in order to be able to worship Him. And I will not have that knowledge of Him unless I am feasting on His Word and His truth so that I may worship Him as He is worthy of the worship. I said last week that if we're bored with God, something is wrong. What I really am trying to hopefully provoke is that God is so much better than what we think. The reason I was bored as a little kid is I just saw the singing but I also remember sitting out on the swing set, looking up in the sky and thinking, He, he made all this. Has anybody had, you've had those moments? You're overwhelmed with it? That's, that's the Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit, telling you, drawing you up. And where did I get the knowledge that He's the Creator? Genesis chapter 1, as a little kid watching Superbook, you don't think that has an effect on a little kid? It absolutely has an effect. So that I have the truth, I have the knowledge. God created the heavens and the earth, and He put the sun in the sky and the moon and the stars. And the more I learn about that, the deeper the worship goes. 
the more I learn about who God is and His love and His redemption and His sacrifice slain before the foundation of the world, little explosions go off. Boom! The love of God, the blood of Jesus, the redemption I have in Christ. Once not a people, now a people. That Boom! Boom! And it worship. Worship God, you are great, you are wonderful. It's not some boring thing. I was made for this, and so were you. You were called into it, and the reason it's boring is you don't know Him. That's why it's boring. You are eating a diet of sewage. That's why it doesn't taste good when you have real food. You are eating the gross food of the world. That's the problem. You are satisfied with grossness. And our appetites are jacked up. We have no taste for clear water. Jeremiah says, My people have forsaken me, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns that are broken and can hold no water, and I'm the fountain of living water. That's what he says in Jeremiah. You've went and dug a hole to hope for water in the dirt and the mud, and I'm over here sparkling and shooting up out of the ground like a geyser of living water. Why do you do that? It's a common human problem. It's existed forever. It's called idolatry. It's called these things are more important to me. And they're more important to me because my taste buds are dull. My taste buds for who God is have been dulled. And sermons like this are meant to say, wake up! The King of the universe is here! Those who worship Me will worship in spirit and in truth. This old way, you're right, there's temples, there's formats. This new way is I will come and make my home with you. And you will worship me in spirit and in truth. And Paul says that we worship by the Spirit of God. He leads. He draws. We give glory to Christ Jesus. No confidence in the flesh. And I do need you to hear the rest of Philippians 3 and we're going to be finished. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. This is the sewage that Paul was eating that satisfied his soul. And he's letting you know that satisfaction has been replaced with a superior satisfaction. Here's his list. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, I was the top of the class. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I was serious. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count all of it loss. Why would He say such a thing? 
Paul had the same experience we did. He was the top. He got the best seats at the parties. Everybody moved out of the way when he walked down the street. He was intelligent. He was revered. He came from an intellectual city in Tarsus. He had connections. He was a Roman citizen. He had it made. And when he saw these Christians, he was enraged. All of it, he says, is loss. Because, listen to the words he's using. These are worship words. Surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There is nothing better than this. There is no sex that's better than this. There is no blessing that's better than this. There is no food that's better than this. There is no house or job or career or social standing that is better than this. There is nothing better than this. There are no children and the love and joy they bring. There, even the good things, none of it compares to knowing Jesus. That is what He's saying. We look to satisfy our souls with everything else. And the only... What real worship is, is satisfaction. You are worshiping what you enjoy the most. Because you devote your time, your energy, your mind to that thing. Now that we know what worship is, kingdom priests, it's an internal relationship with God that's maybe not the right way to say it. It's an internal, non-stop experience factory with the Holy Spirit with the truth of God's Word. I don't mean rolling in the floor and crying. I don't mean being slain in the Spirit. I don't mean seeing visions of angels, though any of that is possible. Those things are on the periphery. What I'm talking about is seeing God in every raindrop. Seeing God in every trial. Seeing God in every good thing. Seeing God in every difficult thing and His redemption through those things. Seeing God everywhere, all the time. And the truth of God's Word informs us who He is. And the knowing of Him becomes the pursuit and the passion of your life. And my satisfaction is more and more of Him. And there's never enough. And you never exhaust it. There is no bottom to this well of God's goodness. You can't exhaust Him. You could... You just go and go and we will go that way into eternity. Singing and worshiping and praising and living for His glory. Don't even begin to pretend to know how wonderful heaven will be. But we take it out of the future tense and Jesus brought it into the present tense. And He said, the time is coming and it now is. I will quote John Piper on this. He said, the reason we have missions is not for the sake of missions. We have missions because there's no worship. And the goal of missions is to go get more worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation into this kingdom to be priests. So I want, I want your hearts and your minds to see differently the way that we evangelize the proclaiming of His excellencies. Our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. The way that we worship is yes in songs. I still am going to listen to Oceans and Cry. I, I love that song. I'm going to, I'm going to listen to um, It Is Well With My Soul and, and I'm going to be moved emotionally. And that is God. And the guy in Africa... 
listens to uh, the song we sang this morning, I Exalt Thee. I'm not sure what he does. But I see the joy and the exuberance and the clapping and the dancing and the clapping and the dancing and the clapping and the dancing. And you saw, and I did. I witnessed it. Totally different than us. It doesn't matter what the form is. It's the heart that is engaged that is what matters. I don't like Southern Gospel. But there are some people that hear Bill Gaither and they get all weepy. Well, because it, it's not Bill Gaither, it leads them to see and savor and enjoy Jesus. That's what we're, that's what we're here to do and proclaim it to the world around us. Evangelism then too, and if you're not a Christian, this is for you. It's not about getting it right. It's not about finally quit smoking and drinking and cussing. Going to church. It's about becoming a part of this kingdom. It's about being made into a priest. It's about having your heart changed by the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen on your own. It only happens by the grace of God and He requires your surrender. He comes to you in His grace and He says, I have died for your sin and I have paid your debt. Do you accept my Lordship? And you say, yes. That is what it requires. I want to have everybody stand up if you would. should bow your head with me. Before we receive communion this morning, I just want to ask, is there anybody that doesn't know Jesus in a saving way that wants to? Is there anybody that doesn't know Him and would say, I don't think I'm a part of this kingdom. I'm not sure that I'm a priest unto God. I don't believe I've been born again by His Spirit. Is there anybody this morning that would say that? Because we want to pray with you if there is. Okay. Then what we are going to do, and if you did not do this already, and I meant to do this during the announcements, is out in the foyer we have communion cups. If you would just quietly, if you did not pick these up, if you want to go right out, Chris, if you'll raise your hand, he's right there. He's, you, yeah, you can grab that, Chris, that'd be great. And If you want to go where Chris is standing and grab the communion elements. We're going to receive communion this morning, which is a part of the ongoing intentional worship. This is one of the few things that are called sacraments that are instituted into the church. We believe baptism is a sacrament, something sacred that is done in worship. We believe that communion, the Eucharist, it's a great word, hijacked by others, but we 
we believe that communion is a sacrament, a sacred act of worship. It's one of the few things that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He, he institutes the Lord's Supper on that night before He's betrayed. Because this represents something, and it represents across all cultures and all tribes and all tongues. It represents that we have entered into covenant relationship with the King of the universe. It does represent that the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin, the broken body that makes us whole in Him. This is a spiritual thing that is being done. We're actively acknowledging we are brought into His kingdom by His sacrifice. And it becomes a part of our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today that we are a kingdom of priests. We thank You that we are a people of God. That we are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. A chosen race. We thank You, Lord, We are here to proclaim Your excellencies. We are here not seeing You, but believing in You. We know You are the Redeemer of our soul, and we are filled with joy that is inexpressible. We don't have all the words. God, I pray You would give us words of worship. You would propel us by Your Spirit in the greater depths of knowing You and Your truth. Lord, I thank You for it as we take this in remembrance of you. Let's do this together. Lord, I pray you would take this message, you would help us, you would teach us, you would show us more things about yourself, you would lead us by Your Spirit, to worship in Spirit. And through the Word and through Your truth, to do it in Spirit and in truth. God, let there be explosions in our heart this week as we see You and we are satisfied by You and we are filled with joy because of You. Lord, we thank You for it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.